Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Patrick Sussmilch. Like I'd come in there like every other day and just like leave like wishing he was my dad. Like it was like, like, don't worry, my dad doesn't know what podcasts are. It's cool. <laughs> that and more. But before that, I want to encourage you to go to adamandeve.com. For a limited time, you'll get 50% off just about any item. Now, we're talking about fleshlights. We're talking about Lilo products, the Wee Vibe. Adam and Eve, their own brand products are excellent. Adam and Eve's condoms cannot be beat in terms of quality and sensitivity. Their massager is hugely popular. They have their own silicone lube. I mean, there is a huge selection and there's a huge range of prices depending on, you know, how much you have to spend. We have had a lot of sponsors over the years, but I do have to say that it's this Adam and Eve deal <laughs> that consistently gets the happiest reaction from fans of the show, fans of the show emailing and saying, damn, that really was a fantastic deal. I've got some great stuff. So here's how it works. When you select one item at 50% off, you'll also receive three free adult DVDs of your choice, plus a free exclusive gift. That's that cock ring slash clit bumper. Fun for both. And it's stretchy, made out of silicone. That's the only kind of cock ring for me, is where you can just stretch it every now and then so that you don't feel like you're going to lose your appendage for lack of uh, <clears throat> circulation. Let it breathe, boys, while you're bumping clit. So all you got to do is go to adamandeve.com and use the code RISK at the checkout. That's R-I-S-K at adamandeve.com. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison and this is ultra nate behind me now or maybe ultra nate this episode is called live from minneapolis 2 fantastic show we had in minneapolis this latest time going through there i'll tell you we're gonna play all four stories for you it's the usual ups and downs, folks. A real roller coaster ride on this one. But we're going to start with a super fun one. This was a real treat. He is a comedian based in Minneapolis. I believe he said he was on Last Comic Standing pretty recently. This is Patrick Sussmilch, who you can find on Twitter, at P. Sussmilch. The story we call Handy Dandy.
One of the formative journeys that every adolescent undertakes is the first time they masturbate. <laughs> like, like most people, it's by accident. Like you have like a real chance encounter with like an improperly loaded like washing machine. <laughs> or like you're like going horseback riding and you're like, oh shit, what's going on? But like for like boys, it's like you're in a pool, you know how there's like those little jets that kind of blow sometimes. Sometimes some things happen, you're like, oh, I didn't know that was an option. And um And so the fir the first time I masturbate, I'm eleven. Uh starts out I'm in a I'm in a doctor's office just waiting around. <laughs> you're getting you're getting a little ahead of me here. Um and like, I'm just like waiting around because I had just gotten some allergy shots. Is that, has anyone here ever gotten allergy shots? They're, they're stupid. Because the, they just like take things you're allergic to, put it in like a syringe, and then jam it right into your veins. Like hoping that your body will just get tired of being allergic to things. Like they hope like maybe someday I can pet a kitty cat or something. And like... And so every time you get one of these shots... You gotta just wait around for a half hour in case you go into like anaphylactic shock or something. And which I don't even understand because I asked, like, what happens if, if that happens? And they're like, we're just gonna call 911. I was like, I can, like, I can do that at home. And so, so I passed the time reading magazines. And on this particular day, I'm reading Parenting Magazine. And I don't know why I'm reading Parenting Magazine. Like, my parents are not crushing it, so maybe I thought like, <laughs> like a little, little supplemental reading, I guess. And, um, so like I'm reading this, and one of the articles is a Q&A about how to talk to your kids about like, you know, hard subjects, which was pretty much all sex stuff. And one of them was a Q&A about how to talk to your son about like why touching your penis feels so good. <laughs> And like they detail, they're like, well, when a penis gets touched, it gets engorged with blood, and if you keep touching it, you achieve a thing called an orgasm, and it feels really super great. And like, I'm 11, and I read this, and I'm like, for real? <laughs> so, I make, it, I make it a point to try this out when I get home. And so that ends with just me like, I'm just like touching, like I'm clumsily touching myself to Lisa from News Radio. That was, that was my, like, liter like literally just like touching it. Cause the magazine said touching. It didn't say like grabbing or rubbing. So I'm just, I'm just poking at it. Like, it, like it looked a lot like the first time your grandma uses an iPad. It was just not, it was not, not great. Oh God, there was a, it, like, it, I got this idea, I was like, you know what I gotta do? Slap it against this bookshelf. So I do that. <laughs> Wanted to see if that would do anything. And uh, anything, and it, no, it doesn't. <laughs> and like, I eventually just like, adopt this maneuver that's just kind of like a cat, like, batting a ball of yarn. It was, like, it wasn't great, but like, it got the job done. <laughs> and, uh, felt pretty good. I didn't realize it at the time, but that was, that was the start of a newfound fashion. Um, 
Uh, jumping ahead here in this story, uh, at the age of 18, I decide to dorm while attending the University of Minnesota. And like... <laughs> not all at once. <laughs> and like... Like, I'm expecting, like, this newfound era of, like, freedom and personal growth. But what I get is just me and three roommates sharing a 600-square-foot box. And, like, my roommates suck. Because, like, I applied for the dorms late, so I didn't get to, like, choose. I just got stuck with whoever the U couldn't place. Which was a real motley crew here. Because we had a... <laughs> we had one guy. Um, all he would do is he would just listen to Blink-182 and cry... while eating Jimmy John's. <laughs> and my, the other roommate, he would just spend like all day playing World of Warcraft. No, he spent, like, he spent all night playing World of Warcraft. He would spend all day having irritable bowel syndrome. <laughs> and it was, uh, the weird thing about him, he was like a staunch creationist, but like constantly trying to fuck. It was so confusing. And then my third roommate was a Somali immigrant who just would spend all day watching Nicolas Cage movies. <laughs> it was like he, like, he couldn't speak English, but he could understand it, so we would just like, we just like watch National Treasure together. Because like our love of Nicolas Cage transcended language. <laughs> and like the problem is that because of their schedules, there's like always like someone else in the room. And like suddenly... Like, I didn't have any chances to masturbate. And like, yeah, right? It sucks. <laughs> and like, I tried that usual dorm thing where like, you all just masturbate at night and pretend you can't hear each other. <laughs> but like, that just, it's just not satisfying because you like, gotta pretend that like, you're not and you gotta like, stifle your breathing. And it's just, it's not fun. And like, the dorm we were in was Sanford Hall, so it was nine stories tall, really poorly built, so like all the heat just went right up to our room. So like sleeping with a blanket was just god awful. And like I'm not gonna like go for it without like cover. Cause like that I'd be getting like a lot closer to my roommates than I want to. Um ugh. and so and so like I try masturbating in the stalls of the communal bathroom. Yeah, exactly. It's not, like, it's not, you, you know, whatever. It's like, is there's a shower, so there's always, like, a dude, like, singing, and that would drown out my heavy breathing. And, like, I don't know. Like, ironically, like, I would masturbate in those stalls, but I never felt comfortable enough to poop in them, which was... <laughs> was kind of interesting. Like, for that, for that task, there's, like, three stories below. There's, like, a single occupancy room, and that's where I would go to take care of that. And, like... And, like, if I had the time, I would also masturbate in there because I was doing it a lot. <laughs> uh, I get tired of the public bathrooms, though, because, like, one, it's a bathroom, not the most sensual of environments for yourself. And two, it's 2005, so we didn't, I didn't have a smartphone to, like, look at porn or, like, Facebook photos on. So, like, it's just me and my imagination. And, like, you just... I got, like, I ran out of fantasies, basically. And, like, the lack of acceptable masturbation experiences wears me down. Because, like, masturbation is my release, right? Like, it's how I was dealing with stress. 
And I was like a stressed out 18 year old. Cause like my mom, a few years ago, she ran away to Poland to take care of like my grandma. Cause she's from Poland. That, I don't know, someone laughed when I said Poland. So they were like, fucking, that's dumb. <laughs> so she like, she like went to Poland to take care of my grandma. And then she's like, you know what? I'm not coming back. So that, you know, that's fun. And then. <laughs> A few years before that, my brother decided to give up his hobby of scribbling threatening letters about wanting to murder the family. Yeah, to go live in Bemidji with some woman he met from the internet. And like, you guys know, but for if this gets on the podcast, like Bemidji, it's like a city, upstate Minnesota that like, it's a yeah, it's a cesspool. Thank you for really. Yeah, I definitely. Well, how I was going to describe it is that um, <laughs> is that it's a town in northern Minnesota where dreams go to die, but <laughs> cesspool is a shorter way to say it. Um, and so, like, my dad's the only person left in the family, and he spends all his time complaining about my mom and, like, opining about his first wife and how he wishes he'd never met my mom, which feels really great because he'd like do that for like 30 minutes and they'd be like but you kids are alright I guess and I'm like that okay awesome so like I wasn't like a mentally stable 18 year old so like masturbating was pretty much all I had going on for me uh, and oh god this is getting sad and I so like for like a while I, like, I got to see like a therapist which was pretty dope like twice a week I'd go into his office and like tell him everything that's wrong and he'd be like hey you matter, you know, which was great. Like, I'd come in there, like, every other day and just, like, leave, like, wishing he was my dad. Like, it was like, like, don't worry, my dad doesn't know what podcasts are. It's cool. (laughs) Oh, God. And, like, after my 18th birthday, Health Partners was like, you're an adult now, buddy. Get out of here. And, like, I had suddenly nothing left because I was, like, too afraid to do, like, drugs and stuff. So the only thing I had left was just masturbating, and boy, do I lean in. Like, it was... Like, I began masturbating a lot. Like, like way too much. Like, I would masturbate, and then I'd keep masturbating to, like, a comic, comical amount of times. And then I'd, like, keep masturbating to, like, a sad amount of times. But then I'd, like, keep masturbating to where it got funny again. Like... <laughs> Like, I, like, I, like I, I literally don't have enough hands to count how many times I was masturbating a day, which is more than ten. Um, let's see. Where, where was I masturbating? I hear you ask. Well, I was masturbating. <laughs> uh, I, was, uh, I was masturbating in my bed, in the shower, in the living room. Like, even in my friends' houses if I found an opportunity. And, like, by opportunity, I mean, like, one time, my friend had, like, a Star Trek Voyager calendar, and there was, you know, Seven of Nine was on that show, and was just like, I'm here and wearing, like, a Playboy bunny suit. Don't worry about it. And, like, I just, like, tore that out of the calendar and then just, like, went and masturbated in my friend's parents' bathroom. I, I don't know what my plan was, because I was, like, because, like, ob- it was pretty obvious. Like, where'd March go? Like, I don't, like, I don't know what... I don't know what my plan was. And like, like I, was, I was literally masturbating to the point of injury. Like, I'm like my penis would bleed. <laughs> yeah, and you would think most people would stop at that point, but not, 
not old Patty Suss, not me. I would, I just, you know, there's a problem, I'll fix it. So I just like switch hands, loose a grip, and then finish what I started. Oh, God. And like, I was running this by someone, and they're like, why don't you just like use lotion or something? And like, honestly, thought never crossed my mind. <laughs> and I was like, where were you 15 years ago? And like, it's like I had this schedule going on and it sustained me for a long time. But now, you know, in the dorms, because of these roommates, I was denied access to that sweet release I'd come to rely on. So like the tension built up inside of me and was manifesting itself as like rage. Like I was just lashing out. Like once I verbally assaulted a TA for taking our creative writing class outside because it was such a nice day. <laughs> Which, one, real original. But like... <laughs> But I was just, like, pissed off because I was, like, such a nice day in my ass. Like, I got allergies because the shots didn't work. And, like, like the sun's out and I burn easily. And I don't know. I was just, I was just pissed off because, like, I'm, I'm paying... My dad's paying thousands of dollars <laughs> to go to school. And then I just get a TA. It's like, oh, let's go outside. Now I got to fight bees and shit? Like, no. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> but then I... I still went outside because, you know, I didn't want that absence. <laughs> it's a real sourpuss about it. Um, and finally, in late October, uh, I found release through some magical confluence of events. All my roommates were gone. Like, I don't know why. Maybe there was, like, some kind of creationist Nicolas Cage festival <laughs> sponsored by Jimmy John's they all went to. <laughs> we're like... Like, for the first time, I could finally, like, masturbate in peace. Like, really get at it, you know? <laughs> so, like, I had, like, a real, like, solid rhythm going on, you know? Like, it was, like, it was, like, you know, up and down. Like, you know, up, just taking in everything happening on screen. And then, like, down, just let the whole world just melt away. And then, like, right back up, briefly wonder what it's like to blow a dude. And then... <laughs> and then down, you know, just push that thought, like, just deep, deep down. <laughs> I wasn't, like, now I am, but at the time, not ready to admit that I'm into dudes, because I'm from the suburbs, and I didn't know that was an option. <laughs> and, like, like, I'm get, like, I'm getting close, right? You know how, like, you get, like, a soda out of a vending machine, and it, like, has a real bumpy ride down? And you hold it, and you're like, oh, Christ, this is... You can just, like, feel that tension in there, but you're like, God, I'm so thirsty. And, like, you know it's going to make a mess, so you're like, I'm going to, like, little, like, a little spurt, like a little, like a little... Like, you do that, and, like, your hands get, like, a little wet. Like, that's where I was at this point. <laughs> oh, God. See, so it's, like it's like that, but my dick. And, um... And apparently, in my euphoria for a proper stroke session, uh, I leave my door ajar, um, which I admit, real rookie mistake. Um, I don't know. So, like, while I'm sitting there, like, abusing the use high-speed internet to be, like, the Augustus Gloop of online porn, I hear this, like, this, like, soft knock. And, like, from years of masturbation, I was like, oh, shit, that's an open-door knock, because... Like, it wasn't, wasn't my first day, you know what I'm saying? So, like, I quickly holster my weapon, 
<laughs> well, like when you're writing these at your computer, you're like, holster the weapon. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> it's, but like, it's like, I was wearing sweatpants, so it was a pretty easy like maneuver, like shut that laptop. Uh, and then I look over and like, God, I shit you not. I look over and there's just R.T. Ryback. <laughs> The mayor of Minneapolis. Yeah, just like, just like standing there in my room. He's like, like impeccable suit, like impeccable smile. Like I'm just sitting there like. <laughs> he's like, he's like the cool mayor, you know, like literally the month before he had crowd surfed at First Avenue and like, I don't know, probably spent like the whole day doing serious mayor shit, like, like building schools and roads. And I don't, I don't know what mayors do. <laughs> I don't, like my only experience with mayors is like Sim City. So I just assume he's like, I'm going to put disasters on for Minneapolis, see what happens. And uh, well, I don't know, like, this is like the mayor all of a sudden in this room that I had hitherto had my dick out in. I'm just kind of like staring at him and then he breaks the silence. He's like, hi, I'm R.T. Rybeck. I'm running for re-election. And then he's just like, posts his arm up for a handshake. <laughs> and, and, and like, I, there's, like, there's like no way he didn't know that like something was up. Cause I was like, I was like sweaty. I was like still like sitting down. Pulling like a like a thinker, like the thinker. Cause I was like using my elbow to really like to put I have written down putting my penis in a paddock, and that's just when you say it out loud it feels so much worse. Um, so I stand up, like real carefully, making sure everything stays tucked into obscurity, and and I sh I shake his hand. Because <laughs> like what what can I do? <laughs> what am I going to say? Like, sorry, Mr. Mayor, can't shake your hand because I was just shaking hands with the governor? No, you can't <laughs> do that. So I, I, I shake it. And if you're wondering, his hand, ah, oh, so smooth and supple. It's like truly the hand of an intellectual. <laughs> oh, and then he's like, I tell him, like, I'm, I can't, I don't know why you're here. I've only been in Minneapolis a month. I can't vote for you and he's like yeah I know I just like being here and I'm okay <laughs> fair enough and then he leaves and then I immediately wash my hands because I plan on getting back to masturbating because like and like he probably shaking a lot of hands and I was like I don't want to get impetigo on my penis so so I like you know wash my hands make sure the door is locked and then um god and then proceed to drop the Mentos in the Diet Coke. <laughs> Did someone do a sound effect? Someone's like, <laughs> yep. That's the sound it makes. Oh, and like, oh. And like I've kind of told abridged versions of this story before. One time, I was doing a show at a comic book convention because, of course. <laughs> And I was like walking around the showroom. It was at Convergence. I don't know if you've been. 
four people, perfect. <laughs> and I was just like walking around and there's like this woman just had like a tray full of sugar cubes and she's like, you want a sugar cube? And I have, I have the palate of a show pony. So I was like, hell yeah, I do. <laughs> hell yeah, I want a sugar cube. Grab that, throw it right in there. Really enjoying it. Then I taste something bitter and I'm like, oh, that's right. That's how you do acid. <laughs> and spit it out. And then I sit in a chair for what I thought was like five minutes until a friend comes. I was like, Pat, you've been sitting in that chair for two hours. You gotta go on stage. And I go on stage and my mind goes completely blank, probably because of the acid. And then I just tell like a really bad version of the story to like a room full of people dressed as Doctor Who. And they didn't like it. <laughs> And I don't blame them. <laughs> the, next, the, ne the only other time I tell this story is uh, I, I, was, I was a host at Acme Comedy Company and I was about to host a show and like right before I go on stage, the manager, Sarah, comes out and says, Pat, crazy thing, uh, the mayor's wife's in the audience. <laughs> and I say, boy, do I have a story for her. And I tell that story. <laughs> and like, no one laughs except like just this maniacal cackle in the back. <laughs> which was, which was RT's wife. <laughs> and she, com she comes up to me after the show, is like, oh, I love that story so much. And because she's like, RT loves like going dorm storming, which is apparently the term. <laughs> And she's like, I think that's a fucking stupid idea. And now I've got, you know, proof. <laughs> uh, and, um, and the interesting thing, this was, a, this was in 2011. And the next week, Acme was going to have like a big 20th anniversary, like blowout show that RT was supposed to host. <laughs> and then... The next day after I tell this story, he gives a call and says, can't do it, and then gives no reason as to why. And I like to think it's because of me. <laughs> and that's, um, that's pretty much the end. Um, a lot of people have been asking me, I've been like sharing this, and they're like, so how many times are you like masturbating now a day? And it's, um, it's not a lot. Uh, what happened, I was on like antidepressants for like eight years and that pretty much just killed my boner. So now what I spend all day doing is arguing on Facebook. <laughs> and it's basically the same thing. <laughs> all right, thank you. I think we might have buried the lead there, and that is that Patrick masturbates to Facebook photos, guys. <laughs> so if you're scrolling through and thinking, hmm, who do I want to friend or unfriend? No, I don't want to. There's many creepier things on the internet to be masturbating to than your baby shower photos. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs>
We are going to switch gears here. Uh, like I said, we're going to go into slightly more emotional terrain tonight. And she is a first-time storyteller. She is a virgin. She is a fan of the show that pitched us, and we were so touched by uh, what she shared in her story. So it's a real honor to bring her up to the stage. Please give a big, warm welcome to Amanda Payne! Two years ago, my husband Jake and I found out we were pregnant for the second time. We had been trying for a few months, so it wasn't unexpected, but it was still kind of scary. Exciting, but scary. When we went to our first doctor's appointment, we found out we were having twins. (laughs) Then we were really scared, but we were really excited. It went back and forth. We would just look at each other and go, oh my God, we're having twins. And then we would look at each other and go, oh my God, we're having twins. <laughs> what, what are we going to do? We're going to need a bigger car, and we have to buy two of everything. How are we going to afford two of everything? And do we need to buy a bigger house? And we would remind ourselves to just breathe. And then we would smile. Because in the end, if we had each other, we could get through anything. At 20 weeks, halfway through the pregnancy, you go in for a growth scan. They just check on the baby, see how they're growing, see if there's any problems. But most importantly, that's when everyone finds out the sex. And we were super excited because we were having two little boys. The most important thing to do after you find out the sex of the baby is you gotta pick out names. And it's not an easy feat. I remember Jake and I were in the car alone, driving for a long distance, and our older son was at his grandma's, so it's just me and him, and we're firing back and forth. How about this? How about this? How about this? My husband's favorite response was always, I knew a so-and-so, and he was a jerk. We cannot name our kids that name at all. And it had come down that I had two first names that I really, I just, I really wanted. But, but Jake was on the fence, and he didn't know, eh, I don't know. So any parent would do this. You know, when you're choosing the name that your children are going to live with for the rest of their lives, we just made a deal. I said, if you let me choose the first names, you can choose whatever you want to be the middle names. <laughs> And that's how we ended up with Malcolm Thorin and Duncan Gray. (laughs) And immediately when we named them, it was this imagining of they already had their own personalities. Of course, um, Malcolm was the adventurous one. He was going to get into trouble. He was going to climb trees. He was going to scrape his knees. And then Duncan was going to be more sensitive and artistic and have an old soul. It was so much fun seeing them. And I've always read that twins, they have their own language. No one in the world will understand them better than each other. I knew that they would always have each other and they would be partners in crime, especially when it came time to gang up on their older brother. (laughs) When the growth scan was done, 
the doctor said that everything looked good, they were growing good, but the fluids were just a little off between the two babies. Probably nothing, just come back next week, we'll check it again. I go in the following week, it hasn't gotten better. It's actually gotten worse. That's when my perinatologist tells me that she has to send me to a specialist. And I thought, you're already a specialist. You have regular OB, you have perinatologists. So who's the specialist of the specialist? And that's when she told me about something called twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome, or TTTS. TTTS is a disease where one of the babies will get more fluid than the other. And it's very rare, but it almost always results in death of both of the babies. So we go to the specialist, and like any specialist that has a very tiny field of perfection, he's a mover, he's a shaker, and he sits us down and he goes, yeah, don't worry, there is a procedure that you can have to try and reverse this. It's a 50-50 chance that both of them will survive, but if one dies, there's a 90% chance that he will survive. And to him, it was just numbers. This was his every day. But for Jake and I, it was devastating. 50, 50, those are terrible odds. <laughs> At that moment, I wanted so much to have an adult come in and make the decision for me on what to do because I'm not an adult. I can't make that decision. Someone is smarter than me and is going to come in and do this for me. And then I realized I'm the adult now. I have to make this decision. My husband reminded me that some hope is better than no hope at all. So that very day, I walked into an operating room under my own power. I couldn't be put under, so for the entire procedure, I had to be awake. The operating room is freezing cold, and you're lying on a very uncomfortable table, and there's a million people rushing around next to my head and yelling out, do we have this, do we have that? Okay, awesome, we're ready to go. And they made a small incision, and they inserted a laser with a tiny camera on the end, and they cauterized the arteries connecting the babies. The coolest thing was there was a monitor right next to my head, and I could see everything that the camera saw. And what I saw was tiny little hands. They had these tiny little bones and these dark veins running through them, and the skin was paper thin. And I thought, who gets to see this? Who gets to see their babies growing inside of them, not on a fuzzy ultrasound screen, but actually see them? The next morning, we had an ultrasound, and both babies had survived. And that was our woohoo moment. <laughs> there they were on the screen, punching and kicking each other, and already fighting in utero. And it was the best. I wouldn't have it any other way. 
I thought, this is it. We made it over this hurdle, and this is going to be a funny story that we get to tell them as they grow older. But the following week, we found out that Duncan had died. I was devastated. This is the one thing they don't tell you how to handle. You read all the pregnancy books and websites, and nobody talks about what to do when you lose a child, let alone if you lose a child, but you have to carry the other one for as long as you can. I had to walk around for two months with Malcolm alive and growing, and Duncan, who was dead. Uh, we, of course, told our close friends and family, um, but I didn't tell people like the mailman that came into my office every day that you have that fun little conversation with. And he said, oh, you, you are in for a treat. It's going to be crazy soon. Twins, I can't imagine it. And I was so hurt. I was so angry and sad, I wanted to yell at him and go, no, I don't know what it's like. I have no idea because one of my babies is dead and I have to carry it around just so I can have one baby to survive. But I didn't. You can't drop that on <laughs> unsuspecting people. So in the time that we were supposed to be picking out cribs and car seats and cute matching outfits, my husband and I were deciding on if we wanted a casket or an urn. And the biggest question that I had to answer was if I wanted to see Duncan after the birth. And part of me wanted to say, yes, of course. He is my son. Of course I want to see him. But another part of me wanted to say no. I, I was scared. Nobody could tell me what he was going to look like. He couldn't come out flat because his brother had to grow around him. And, and what if I was disgusted? What if I was disgusted at the sight of him? Or that I broke down so much that I couldn't be there for Malcolm, who would be alive and need me the most? I couldn't make the decision. I didn't know how to. So I didn't until 35 weeks when I woke up one morning and my water had broken. And then I had to make the decision very fast. In the end, I did decide to see Duncan. I actually met Duncan before I met Malcolm. Because he was born a month early, they had to rush him straight off to the NICU. So when I was in recovery, they took Duncan and they cleaned him up and they put him in this little yellow gown and they gave him this little white knitted hat and they placed him in a basket and they brought him in to me and I instantly fell in love with him. I know that at that time, Jake was right next to me, but 
I don't remember it because everything else fell away. There was no hospital room, there were no nurses, there was no uncomfortable bed, there was no pain, there was just me and Duncan. And he had the tiniest little feet and the tiniest little hands. And I would stroke his face and his skin was so soft. And I just cried. I didn't know what else to do. So I just told him how sorry I was and how much I loved him and how I hope that he knew that we tried everything we could to try and save him. I had wanted to have a funny story to tell both of my boys when they got older. But now I have this story. This story that I now see as a story of hope. Because I can tell Malcolm that his brother died so he could live. Thank you. This is Risk. This is BDI behind me, and we just heard from Amanda Payne. And now listen, there is nothing I love more than books, but I know that you probably feel like I do. You get stressed that you don't have time to read them. Well, Audible.com has the perfect solution. Get audiobooks and listen to those books you've been meaning to read while you're on the go, while you're doing things at the gym, doing your commute, getting chores done. Audible.com provides over 250,000 titles from the leading audiobook publishers and broadcasters and entertainers and magazine and newspaper publishers and business information providers. I mean, it's enormous. You can get entire college courses. You can get comedy shows. There's so much incredible content. Their app is free. And works on iPhones, iPad, Android, and Windows Phone. You can also download and listen on your Kindle Fire. And over 500 MP3 players. And unlike a streaming or a rental service, with Audible, you own 
your books so you can access your books anytime and anywhere right from your smartphone. Audible.com has the great listen guarantee. If you decide you don't like the book you choose, no worries. You can exchange any book you aren't happy with for another title anytime. No questions asked. I personally am never not in the middle of about three at the same time. I just read Waking Up by Sam Harris. I read a collection of amazing short stories by Neil Gaiman. I'm taking a philosophy course on existentialism that's, you know, like, I don't know, 40 lectures. There is so much amazing content, including from all kinds of people who've contributed to Risk. Sarah Silverman, Mark Marin, Samantha B, Jen Kirkman. I mean, the list just goes on. Michael Lee and Black, they've all got great books there on Audible. And just for Risk listeners, Audible.com is offering a free 30-day trial membership. Go to audible.com slash risk today to start your free trial. Show your support for Risk and get a free 30-day trial at audible.com slash risk. I can't recommend it enough. But if you don't type it in that way, it, we, it won't do us any good. So audible.com slash risk. Now, you've probably also heard about Blue Apron. Oh my gosh, Blue Apron. They know that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. So they set the highest quality standards for their community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, fisheries, and ranchers, whether it's Japanese ramen noodles, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, or heirloom tomatoes, Blue Apron is bringing you the best for less than $10 per meal. Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. Amazing new recipes are created each week by Blue Apron's culinary team, and they're not repeated within the year. You can customize your recipes each week based on your preferences. Choose delivery options to fit your needs. There's no weekly commitment, so you only get deliveries when you want them. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe and all the ingredients you need. All of them are prepared within 40 minutes or less. Check out this week's menu and get your three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash risk. You're going to love how good it feels to actually be cooking yourself in an easy step-by-step way with wonderful real food tastes <laughs> to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash risk. BlueApron.com slash risk. Because Blue Apron is a better way to cook. Now we're going to get to our last couple of stories. Starting with someone who has told so many wonderful stories for us already. And she teaches for the Story Studio, our school, out there in Minneapolis every other month. Amy Salloway teaches these remarkable storytelling workshops. If you live in Minneapolis you got to jump in on one. I have sat in on one of Amy's workshops, and it was such a treat. Everyone in that room loved her wisdom, her sensitivity, her encouragement, 
I mean, she is just one heck of a teacher. If you live in Minneapolis, you gotta get in on it. Go to thestorystudio.org to learn more about that. Or just go to amysalloway.com to learn more about Amy. Here she is now with a story we call Timmy. David and I didn't plan to have an imaginary child. Like, we weren't trying. <laughs> Honestly, I'm not even positive when he was conceived. I think it might have been a night when David and I were grocery shopping in Seattle and we're in the cereal aisle and David grabbed some Pop-Tarts and he said in this little high-pitched squeaky voice, Mom, Mom, can we get a box of toaster pastries? Please, Mom, please, can we? Please, Mom, please. And he was bouncing up and down and I laughed and just went with it and said, Now, Timmy, are you sure that's really the healthiest breakfast? And we looked at each other, and that was it. Timmy stuck. (laughs) Timmy was between five and eight years old. His age was fluid, and he was pale and frail and delicate, and he had wispy blonde hair that he liked wearing in little pigtails held up with pochaco barrettes. Timmy would tell you, Puchaco is a Hello Kitty character by Sanrio. He is a dog of the streets. He is my favorite. (laughs) Timmy was a child prodigy. Thank you. And and almost for sure a future homosexual. And because of that, he got made fun of a lot by the kids in his class, especially these two boys, Justin and Petey, who were really popular and who Timmy idolized and wanted to be friends with so badly, even though they were horrible to him. Like, they held him down and drew with permanent marker all over his face. He came home looking like the Berlin Wall, and and I was about to yell, and he said, Mom, no, no, it's okay. They were just being artistic. I don't know how he had that kind of resilience. I mean, he definitely didn't get it from David or or me. But I have gotten ahead of myself. Let's go back. (laughs) None of my friends could figure out how David and I were a couple. Because I am almost pathologically extroverted, and David was socially phobic and silent. I met him where all fat girls meet their first boyfriends, at the Renaissance Festival. (laughs) And... (laughs) You might might be saying to yourself, how could an introvert even be at the Renaissance Festival? But the deal is, yes, he wasn't acting. I was. I was playing your basic wench. But David was an early musician. He played about 25 different medieval and renaissance instruments. Um, Recorder, sordoon, bassoon, cornetto, viol de gamba, dulcian. I would be flouncing past the, the grove where he was setting up some subset of these in the morning. Maybe 
polishing his sack butt. And I would say, why, sir, have I caught thee fondling thine instrument here in public? And David would turn bright red and look at the ground and say, what ho? And I would keep going. Tis a long, solid piece of wood there in thine hand. Might I touch it? And he would focus on the ground even more. Yea, verily. (laughs) He was just so different from the actors and improvisers that I was surrounded by all the time. I mean, for one thing, he seemed to maybe, possibly, be interested in me, which was a quality that none of the actors and improvisers ever had. And also, he was just kind and innocent. Like, at one point, um, there was an after party on the festival grounds at night, and I ended up sitting next to David on a picnic table, awkwardly not talking. (laughs) He was still wearing his white puffy shirt, and in the moonlight, it just glowed iridescent, as did his giant forehead because he was losing his hair. And um, I just blurted, so where are you from anyway? And he looked up at the night sky and pointed to a batch of stars and said, there. (laughs) And I knew the real answer was probably Minnetonka, but, but something about his glowing head and his silence and his long skinny arm, he looked exactly like E.T. And I just thought, I could really kind of believe this. That, that he fell from someplace very far away down to earth. And I kind of loved that. So point being, yes, it was unlikely that we became a pair. Loud, spherical me and a slender, silent spaceman. <laughs> and that's all my friends saw, the contrast. They didn't know David's origin story, that his parents had neglected him through his childhood, and he lived until he was 28 in his mother's basement. This musical savant who built and played every instrument there was, but could not figure out how to say hello. And my friends didn't get why I related to that, because parental neglect and parental emotional abuse are two sides of the same coin. And you can end up filled with shame and self-loathing, whether it's because of silence or shouting. So the other thing that no one could understand or would even have seen was that when David was alone with just me, he could be brilliant and hilarious and a better actor and improviser than me by like thousands of times. That was where we matched our sense of play. It was this shared energy made of our nerdiness and awkwardness and innocence, and it became a thing in our relationship. So if we were in the kitchen, David would have the vegetables act out a little musical number before he stir-fried them. And um, when he cleaned our apartment, he would vacuum my stuffed animals, but first he would check in with each of them to make sure it was consensual. (laughs) And out of that same energy came Timmy. 
And I don't even know how to explain to me, except that he was like a collaborative improv game that had no set rules and no discussion. He felt channeled. So sometimes David was the voice of Timmy, and sometimes I was. Sometimes we were Timmy's parents, and sometimes Timmy confided in us about his parents. And sometimes we were his parents, but we weren't us. I know, it's confusing. You're just going to have to, like, go with it for the next 12 minutes. I'm sorry. And we also played the the ever-growing cast of characters in Timmy's life. So, for example, Timmy's best friend was uh, the little girl next door, Jennifer, who was very well-adjusted. But Jennifer's mother was a little bit of a problem. Um, Mom, what's a lush... Uh, Jennifer says her mom is a lush. Yeah, Jennifer's mother sometimes had Timmy come up to her bedroom and she'd dress him up in her lingerie and jewelry. (sighs) You're so pretty, Timmy. God, I would kill for those cheekbones. So much beauty wasted on a boy. What's your secret, Timmy? Do you moisturize? All the adults in Timmy's life were dysfunctional. Um, But Timmy found joy anyway. Like when he got cast as broccoli in the school nutrition pageant. And he handed us three pages of costume renderings, including swatches. Mom, look, um, here's um, green spandex for the body and lame for the florets. Um, Mom, can you please sew this by tomorrow? Please, Mom? Please, Mom? Mom? Mom. (laughs) And the years went by. The world of Timmy kept growing. It didn't take a therapist to figure out that eventually Timmy was more than just play. So Timmy's family, um, however it was configured, lived in really dire economic straits. And whenever Timmy asked if he could have a pet, which was fairly often, his mother said no, they couldn't afford another mouth to feed. But one birthday, Timmy just got fixated on a goldfish. He wanted a goldfish so badly. And so his mom got an idea, and she put a baby carrot in a small bowl of water with colorful gravel at the bottom and wrapped it up for him. And Timmy flipped out. Mom! Mom! It's a goldfish! Mom! I'm going to name him Carrot because he looks a lot like a carrot, Mom! And Timmy loved Carrot. And, And the next morning, he transferred Carrot into a plastic baggie to take to school and show everyone. But when he came home that afternoon, he was carrying a smashed baggie with Carrot lying on top. And he burst into tears. Mom, um, Justin and Petey, they tried playing keep away with Carrot and they said that he's not a real fish and that I'm stupid and a weirdo and that they don't want to be my friend. Nobody, Mom, nobody wants to be my friend. That's what they said, Mom. I remember David and I were sitting on the bed and I just threw my arms around Timmy, which is to say I threw my arms around David, 
And I just cried and, and told Timmy that he was wonderful and we loved him so much and that Justin and Petey were wrong and unkind and what they did was terrible and that, that Timmy would find better friends than them. I promised that he would. And I could feel David shaking and I knew he was crying too. And I knew how bizarre this was <laughs> that we were crying over and comforting a child that didn't exist whose painful life experience we had manufactured <laughs> but that obviously we were advocating for more than Timmy. We were speaking to and comforting the children that we used to be and saying the words that we'd never heard. And we were proving to ourselves that we could do this, that this unconditional love and compassion was within us. Through all of that, we never talked about it. <laughs> we, we did not debrief. We did not process. We said nothing. We had some soup and went to bed. <laughs> Honestly, there was a lot we didn't talk about. Because, like, if we weren't playing with Timmy, David didn't really know what to do with emotions, mine or his. There were so many times that I would put my hands on his shoulders and look into his eyes and say, what is going on? And he would whisper, I don't know. Or I would say, can you be here for me? I don't know. And I did not handle that. Well, I was not. I was not good at dealing with that vast, empty space. And so I had enough emotions for both of us. Lots of emotions. So many emotions, which frightened David even more, as well it should. And he <laughs> retreated even farther. And as you can imagine, that pretty much created a vicious cycle. <laughs> David and I also never talked about having non-imaginary kids. Uh, we certainly didn't try to have them. We tried to actively prevent them with the use of a diaphragm, which I was probably one of the last 12 people in the world <laughs> to use in the 1990s, and which I was incredibly inept at using because to use a diaphragm, you have to be really comfortable with your body, especially the inside of your body, and I was not. David also was not all that comfortable with the inside of my body or the outside, and um, that was an issue in our relationship, but is a whole other story. But sometimes, naked activities did take place. And one day, my period was late which pretty much never happened. The opposite usually happened. In fact, because I have PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome. Anyone else? Anyone? Woo! Yeah! Sisters unite. Um, right. So I uh, usually, um, that causes horribly painful cycles and bleeding like the Red Sea. So I was never short on periods, but now suddenly this one wasn't showing up. One day, two, four... 
Whenever I would see my gynecologist, she would ask me if I thought I would maybe someday want to start a family. And I would always say, I don't know. She would tell me that I might want to know because PCOS can make it hard to conceive. So if I was going to try, sooner would be better than later. I was a few years shy of 30. I had no ticking biological clock. I had no pining uterus when I would see a baby. (laughs) But I did have a monogamous, committed relationship. And we had Timmy. And now I thought, like, oh my God, what would it be like to have an actual 3D Timmy? To see David's wispy hair and shy, quiet face on an actual teeny little boy who would, of course, be precocious and incredibly gifted and talented, who we could make a broccoli costume for if he wanted that. What if by now we actually knew how to do it right? I told David while we were sitting in the car coming home from something. I remember um, we were parked uphill as you almost always are in Seattle. Uh, like, like we were on the ascent of a roller coaster. To be honest, we were in a kind of silent phase. A lot of um, David being in the kitchen, stirring a pot of lentils, which was his fallback activity. Me sitting on the futon in another arm of the galaxy. But still, when I told David, I'm six days late, it's possible that I'm pregnant. I thought there'd be a moment of him going, whoa, and, and having a little montage of emotions and hugging me. I didn't expect him to say, if you're pregnant, Amy, then you need to get rid of it. He looked straight ahead out the windshield at that theoretical roller coaster track, and I said, what? And he said, Amy, we are in no position to have a child. We have no money. We have no savings or resources. We can barely hold ourselves together. I don't want to be a father. I don't want a baby. I remember there was no possessive pronoun in anything David said, not my baby, not our child. And I kept trying to repeat in my head that I didn't really for sure want a baby either, that it was just that there was this potential opportunity that might not come again. And it could be that I wasn't even pregnant, but I couldn't hear myself think any of that because all I could hear was David, this person I had been with for seven years, saying... If you're pregnant, please take care of it. And stupidly, I just said, but you're so good with Timmy. (laughs) And David said, Timmy isn't real. And then he said, we should go in the house. And we did, and I got my period the next day, and we never said another word about it. But really, that was the beginning of the end. Timmy was still around, but he got very preoccupied with aliens and UFOs, and he told us that there was a man who visited our closet late at night every now and then. The man in the closet. 
closet, Mom. The man in the closet says that you should um, leave him some mozzarella sticks in your shoes as a snack. And he said that I should pack a suitcase because someday soon he's going to take me back to our home planet where I belong. I sat on the floor in front of our closet looking at our row of shoes at the point where my shoes stopped and David's began. And I looked at the empty space in David's Birkenstock where a foot would go or a mozzarella stick. And I just thought, duh. I know who the alien is. Timmy's not the only one who's going to leave. And then David really did break up with me as we were lying on our bed, staring up at the stucco ceiling, weeping, holding each other's hands. And I cried, what's going to happen to Timmy? And we both cried harder. And David said, we can share custody. (laughs) I don't actually know if we did share custody. It is hard to tell with an imaginary child. And also, I moved back here to Minneapolis, and David stopped talking to me. I very much hope, bitchy though it may be, that the woman he started dating suspiciously soon after he broke up with me didn't become Timmy's stepmom. (laughs) I kind of doubt she did. I do know Timmy isn't real. Really, I do. But I still talk to him even now. We talk about things that make him scared, like when we saw a flyer in Uptown on a telephone pole looking for a lost cat named Mocha. Mom, what what if Mocha isn't found and it becomes winter? She is not a cat of the streets, Mom. (laughs) And we talk in the cereal aisle when he really wants Pop-Tarts, and I tell him that he probably could tell me why they are not a great choice for breakfast. And he says, "Mm, I can do that, Mom. And then he tells me about carbohydrates and proteins. (laughs) I talk to Timmy when I miss David and when I feel alone and to remind myself that I'm worthy of love. And I talk to him to remember that I have the power to love someone fiercely and unconditionally. Even if I can't see it, it's within me. Thanks. Uh, that reminded me that, you know, uh, the uh, psychologist, Carl Jung, one of the founding mothers and fathers of psychology, he uh, had a theory that is, it is actually a good idea to have a, an imaginary friend. A lot of people thought he was completely crazy. Uh, but he had an, an imaginary friend named Philemon, an old sage, an old wise man that he would go out on walks in the forest with. And he, he did say he would have to imagine before going out on the walk that there was a rope tied to one of his feet that was attached like a leash, you know, a long, long rope attached back to the house 
so that in his mind there was this idea of, yeah, yeah, I'm going really out there into the imaginary realm, but there is something that's going to bring me back down to earth. I had an imaginary friend in my adulthood at one point. It was God. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not saying that I, I, I am a believer. I believe in God. But I think that the God that I was speaking to at this particular point in my life was actually more imaginary than not. Because I read that book, Conversations with God. I don't know if you've ever seen it before, but it's a guy who starts taking dictation like Muhammad from God and just lets his pen go. And I was like, that's a great idea. Anyone could do that. So I started with a journal. I was so deep in the alcohol and the failure after the state broke up. I was penniless, so I was kind of reaching. So I was asking desperate questions and then just letting the pen answer them. And, and they started started off pretty profound, but in retrospect, years later, I took a look at this journal, and there's one point where I'm, like, devastated because I've lost another job. And I'm like, oh, what the hell should I do? And God writes back to me, oh, just pack a bowl <laughs> and put on some Miles Davis. Yes. And, you know, I will say that it's the pack-a-bowl part that makes me a little curious, you know. <laughs> I'm not so sure that, you know, true God is, is a stoner, but I am pretty convinced that God must be a big old fan of mid-century American jazz. So, I don't know. I'm still iffy on that one. All right. I'd like to bring our next storyteller to the stage he is a suburban dad. He's actually working on a book about this very subject of the story he's about to share. And it's been a real honor uh, discovering his work and working with him because I just think his story is wonderful and I think he tells it really beautifully. Please welcome to the stage Justin Alford! <laughs> Uh, my stories, I thought it was funny. It's going to seem fucking lame now. As far as the funny parts, the uh, deep and personal parts are still going to sound profoundly deep as long as you don't think too much about what Amy said because how can you compete with that, that level of... Anyway, so I'm waiting for my sandwich uh, at the deli counter at the co-op. And I hear my name and I look over and I see this big smiley face holding a little shopping basket. I can't remember his name, but he's a parent at the preschool. Our kids were friends like three years ago. They ended up going to different schools. His son was a giant with thick blonde hair. My son was a tiny little porcelain doll with short, dark hair. I wish I could remember his name. But anyway, I'm like, hey, how you doing? He's like, hey, good, good. Uh, how's Joey? Ah. Uh, now, and standing in line, like, how's your kid? That's a 30-second thing, right? Oh, blah, blah, blah. You just make the small talk. Your sandwich comes. You go. End of story, right? I'm like, yeah, that's the way it should go. I'm thinking, what if I tell this guy the truth? What if I say, like, well, great. Everything's great. Uh, Joey's Lisa, and he's my daughter now. I mean, with his, like, Smile kind of freeze, and then like melt. I'm like, fuck, would it get awkward real quick, right? There's my laugh. 
When people find out we're raising a young transgender child, they always have the same question. They always say, how can you tell? Like, how do you know your child is transgender? And I always say the same thing. Because they tell you. You're the first group of people who ever got that. Oh, you should get it. Uh, change that. Yeah, uh, people say, well, well, what if they change their mind? And I said, well, I'm pretty sure they tell you. <laughs> the tricky part is you have to be able to hear it. All right, like from, it took me like it, way too long before, before I heard it. Like when Joey was four years old, we're walking through the park. Joey's singing, tomorrow, tomorrow, picking wildflowers to make a bouquet for mommy. Just out of the blue, he goes, I wish I could crawl back up in mommy's tummy and come back out a girl. Right? My first thought was, well, you know, if you were in mommy's tummy, you would come out of poop. <laughs> but no, I don't say that because I'm not supposed to encourage it and I make everything into a poop joke anymore, and you know. But I'm, I'm also, I'm not prepared to have a conversation about biology and reproduction. I mean, the kid's too young for that shit, I think, right? So I'm just like, Joey, let's get out of the pond and catch us some tadpoles. And we had the happiest, singingest, dancingest, dressing upest little kid you ever wanted to see. He used to always try to steal mommy's clothes, which was kind of a problem until one day mommy gave him this puffy old, ratty old green skirt. And he put that skirt on, and he started glowing. I have never seen a child more happy. He started dancing around, look at me, look at my skirt, look at me, daddy, look at my... He runs over to the mirror, and he starts doing all kinds of sassy poses. I'm like, where did you learn that? Look at me, daddy, look at me. I said, damn, Junior, you look sassy. He says, I am sassy, daddy. Well, you don't know. I'm a half a lady. <laughs> I just thought it was cute. I took a little video. We don't have this huge collection of dress-up clothes, right? Dresses and skirts and long hair wigs and high heel shoes and scarves and jewelry and mommy's old purses and anything that the child could steal from mommy. And everything was perfect until preschool. Till we got in with the other kids, and then things started started coming home. I don't know, upset because the other kids didn't want him to wear skirts, didn't want him to have his toenails painted, and he used to play with the boys because he's a boy. Joey started conforming, but he didn't like it. And by the time kindergarten started at the new school, the child really started getting grumpy and unhappy, and unsingy, and undancy. Still like to dress up at home, but it just wasn't enough anymore. He started punching me for no reason. And then he started saying the kind of shit that teenagers say to their parents. You know, I hate you, daddy. I'm like, fuck. 
I don't have the best parenting role models. Like my parents, when I was young, they just gave the fuck up. And they got divorced. And I'm like, or now my five-year-old hates me. Like, I might be the shittiest parent ever, but I'm not going to just give up. I'm going to worry. I'm going to wait. See if this shit works itself out. <laughs> but Joey just started acting out. I find this white, drippy crust on the mirror. What the fuck? What's that all about? Well, Joey was spitting in the... Every time he'd walk past the mirror, he'd spit in the mirror. He started doing all kind of weird, self-hating speech. And then he started shitting everywhere. Shit in the bathtub, shit in his pants, he shit on the floor. He would shit everywhere, every day. Shit, 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 shit. We didn't know what was going on. We were confused. I don't know, maybe this child was being abused somewhere or something, right? We started talking about going to therapy or something. And one day... I find him, he's standing in front of the mirror in his favorite dress-up pink dress in a pile of shit. Shit on the floor, shit on his hands, shit on his dress, shit in his hair. He's spitting in the mirror. And he's saying, I'm so ugly. I'm so stupid. I wish I was never born. And this child is five years old. I wish I was never born. Right? Now, this would be a great place, storytelling wise, for me to have my epiphany. <laughs> and I wish that was the story. I could wish I could tell it. I wish that I was standing next to my child, staring at his reflection through this dripping veil of spit and tears. That would be fucking beautiful. But that's not what happened. What happened was I see my little guy standing in a shit spitting in the mirror and I got angry. I got really mad. I was like, what are you doing? Are you, is that poop? Clean that up. What is wrong with I end up in a fucking nut house? Go in the bathroom, go in the bathtub and clean yourself up. And that's what happened. I got mad, the child shut down and I cleaned up the mess bitching to myself the whole time. It wasn't until the next day, we're over at grandma's house, we're having lunch, and the child shit himself at the table, and I was bah, defeated and exhausted, and I just was like, you know what, let him just sit in that shit. But I couldn't do that because it stunk. Grandma looked really worried, so I'm like, go in the bathroom and clean yourself up. And at this, I. I can't even look at Grandma. This is not the first time we had a pooping incident at her house. I feel like such a fucking failure as a parent, you know. And I know she has felt the same about raising me. I start to tell her the story about the day before with the mirror and the shit and the spit. And Grandma just lets me talk and... I finally look up and I look at Grandma, I see her eyes are all red, she's been crying. She straightens up in her chair and she pushes her spaghetti out of the way and she says, Justin, do you think this behavior, this anger and this pooping that Joey, do you think this has anything to do with him 
like wanting to wear girls' clothes on all the time and him wanting to be a girl. And I'm like, fuck no. That's just play. That's just dress up shit. That's not that how how. And finally, my dim little light bulb started to flicker. <laughs> this little wave kind of passed through my little neural network, and I was like, Grandma, you might be onto something. You might. And on the way home, I asked him, I said, Joey, I said, Joe, I'm looking in the rearview mirror, I'm like, Joey, you won't look at me. I'm like, Joey, what, Daddy? I'm like, Joey, do you want to be a girl? He won't look at me anymore. Joey, what, Daddy? Joey, do you want to be a girl? He's looking out the window. He says, I am a girl, Daddy. You won't let me. And it was in that moment, in that moment, I could finally hear my child. And that was my real epiphany right there. Now, hearing your child does not fix everything. What it does is it opens up this whole episode of worry and confusion. And we started learning all this shit. We started learning all about gender identity and all this stuff. We started working with the schools and working with the families so that we could get the environment around this child to transition. Because that's what happens. You see, the child stays the same. And you work on the environment so the environment can transition and start treating this. And pretty much most of everything adjusted pretty well. And almost exactly a year ago today, she started in first grade, she changed her name from Joey to Lisa and started wearing the girl uniform and she got her spark back. Yeah. And she loves to dance in front of the mirror again. And she doesn't hate me anymore. In fact, she even said, you're a pretty good daddy. <laughs> and I'll take that. And I'll take that. And uh, yeah, and so she's my daughter now. Um, but <clears throat> I'm still standing in the co-op at the daily, waiting for my sandwich, right? Remember? <laughs> Wait, and uh, so he still has this big smile, and I'm like, oh man, it's not fair to dump all this on this guy who I hardly know. You don't really have time, and it's not the appropriate time and not the appropriate place. I wish I could tell him. I really wish I had. I wish I could. I wish I knew how, but I don't know how. And I don't tell him, and I, my sandwich comes, and I leave. I feel shitty. And it bugs me, and it bugs me, and it bugs me, and it bugs me. I'm like, fuck, I, ugh. I will never know. Like, he could have been cool. He could have been like, hey, awesome, good for you. I always knew. <laughs> or he could have been a dick, you know, like, oh, my God, like, get thee away from me. Well, I, but I will never know. And it bugged me, and it bugged me, and it bugged me. So I've decided, anyway, the next time this happens... And it will happen. And somebody comes up to me I haven't seen for a while, and they say, so, hey, Justin, how is your son? You know what? I'm going to fucking tell him. And then we'll see what happens next, okay? Thank you.
fighting But they made me stronger You can call me pussy Pussy is power Every time I let loose I get the situations I'm sorry Mr. Officer Don't take me to the station That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Tiggs to author behind me now. Not a song about having a, a transgender child, but, uh, you know, I think they're few and far between. We just heard from Justin Offwork, and now I am going to read to you a list of everywhere that Risk is appearing next on June 22nd. That is going to be our big show at the Bell House in Brooklyn all funny stories we're doing it in conjunction with the network CISO so it will also be a televised event I don't know if televised is exactly the right word but Josh Gondelman, T.S. Madison Julio Torres and Kurt Metzger are all going to be there on June 25th we are in St. Louis for the first time ever come on out St. Louis June 25th On July 8th, we are in San Francisco, California. July 27th, we are back in Brooklyn at the Bell House again. July 30th, we're back at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. People are thrilled with this new theater we're doing the show in out there in Los Angeles. So come on out, L.A. It's a bigger space. It's a whole new energy to the show out there. So come on out. On August 5th, we're in Toronto, back in Toronto on August 5th. Folks in Toronto, be sure and pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions. The theme that night is disaster. Now, I wish this wasn't the case, but we are still really hurting. It's just been a rough year for us financially, folks, Uh, more so than we expected. We really got hammered by taxes this year, and so we're just kind of begging folks to, if you love what we do, to go to the Support Us page at risk-show.com. You know, we've always been super appreciative and super grateful for the financial support of our fans. That is at the Support Us page at risk-show.com. And that about wraps things up for this week. So, folks, today's the day. Take a risk. <laughs>